early army days in accordance with your wishes. We will start with my experiences in the National Guard from 1936 on. I joined the National Guard in August of 36 and went to summer camp with them for three years. We were a cavalry unit, uh, the F Troop of the 111th Cavalry. We had the horses stayed right near my house in Silver City, and I spent lots of time at the stables. That was where my first real experience was riding and caring for horses. During these four years, we made three summer camps up at uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico, for about two weeks each time, and one summer camp in Fort Bliss. In 1940, the first part of 1940, we changed from a cavalry unit to an air defense unit. We didn't get any guns, but we had some sticks to train with, and we did have a couple of trucks. This lasted until we were called to active duty in January of 1941. When we came on active duty, we spent about a week in the armory at Silver City, uh, mostly with administration and getting shots and physicals and that type of stuff, and then we moved to Fort Bliss. Our barracks weren't quite ready for us at Fort Bliss, but we made best we could. Our barracks consisted of these tents, which slept six men, and we did have a permanent-type mess hall and shower uh, bathroom facilities. We were camped about... Uh, four blocks from where we used to live on Echo Street. We were in the very northwest portion of Logan Heights. From the time we got there in January of 41 until we, I left in August of 41, we spent the first 13 weeks learning to be soldiers. We were our own teachers. We had no outside help. After we had qualified as being no longer recruits, then we got draftees from the state of New Mexico mostly. However, some were from Texas and Oklahoma and came up to full strength. We just about doubled the size and we taught them to be soldiers too. We were more or less their drill sergeants. However, it was on about a one-to-one -one ratio. During our time at Fort Bliss, we had a pretty good time. We got to come home, come home that is, back to Silver City most every weekend. And uh, we weren't too restricted about where we went in the evenings, even for recruits. We got to see quite a bit of El Paso which at that time was not near as big a town as it is now. We did get some 
weapons at that time, uh, I remained, we became uh, G battery of the 200th field artillery. I remained with this battery until about uh, June, and then I transferred to B battery, which was a unit that had originally come from Gallup. This, uh, they took me down there because for some reason our battery had most of the brains of the whole regiment, I believe. Uh, uh, this was because a lot of our people were college students from Silver City. And a lot of these other batteries were made up of people that uh, had just recruited that people who were not even high school graduates. And so they took a lot of our people and spread them out through the regiment of uh, H Battery, got the first sergeant and uh, one of their other key sergeants from our battery and several others people were transferred. I went down to this battery which was three inch guns and I had had no experience but it was uh, as far as the soldiering part it was all the same. It didn't take but a few days to learn about the guns and then I got in the computer section and uh, became the crew chief of the computer section. So you can see they didn't have too much in the way of uh, uh, sharp people or they would have never brought me down. I was a corporal at the time. Uh, they, they spread the officers out at the same time that we had come down with. And yet they uh, became got numerous key jobs because they were all pretty well educated and uh, they had been in the National Guard for some time so they did have some experience where a lot of the other officers had just taken a correspondence course and had no experience at all on the uh, weapons or the doing things, drilling, etc. We stayed at Fort Bliss until August of 41, which time we moved half the regiment to, uh, well, they entrained us to go overseas. We went to Angel Island, which is in the San Francisco Bay right next door to Alcatraz. This was at that time the port of embarkation for all people going to the Pacific. We were there about a week and never got to see the town of San Francisco. We never got off the island. It was a very dull time had by all there. The uh, time was spent in close order drill and administration and of course more shots. We finally got to load aboard a ship and it happened to be the USS President Pierce. It had been a luxury liner on the President 
lines, which went between Hawaii and uh, San Francisco and other points in the Pacific. But it was one of the oldest, and it had just been converted to a troop ship. All they did to convert it was take the holes and put in some bunk beds, about three bunks high, and they called this the dormitories. For the mess hall, the officers and the higher-ranking enlisted men got to eat in what had been the dining room for the first and second-class passengers. But all the rest of us troops ate in a kitchen that was converted from one of the holes or storerooms or something. And the only cooking facilities they had were huge steamers. So everything we ate for the almost three weeks it took to make the crossing was steamed. Uh, it wasn't too bad, but pretty soon you got tired of the smell of steamed food. Our uh, dining area was in an area of the ship that seemed to have the most uh, sway to it, and quite often a lot of dinners weren't consumed due to the, the rocking of the boat. We did get to Hawaii and had a one-day layover. We uh, got off the ship about 7 in the morning and went, of course, everybody wanted to go to Waukee Beach. Well, Waukee Beach in those days was, uh, had been taken over by the, uh, I would say, the lower elements of the island. It was no, it was not a, it was a public beach, but the better people, so to speak, didn't use it. The, uh, you ever get a chance read the book Mimi Stover? If that was a a fiction, historical fiction, I guess you would say, and it explains the whole situation of the traveling men through Hawaii in the late 39s and 40s and 41s, and it, uh, as I say, Waikiki was just a sort of a garbage dump, and it left us all very disappointed. We did get to walk around through through a few shops, but we had to be back aboard ship about three in the afternoon and continued on to Manila. When we got to Manila, we went to Fort uh, Stoltzenberg, which was the Philippine Army post right on the edge of Clark Field, which was the American Air Force Base. Uh, Stolzenberg was a Philippine Army cavalry camp. So we, uh, we were the only American troops there. Uh, the Philippine Army, and uh, I say Philippine Army, it was Philippine scouts. They were led by American officers, but they were all local. And, uh, of course, their customs and 
desires and recreation and everything was considerably different than ours. And the facilities were not too good as far as we were concerned. However, we first got our first look at the morals out in the jungle and spent lots of time uh, walking through the hills. There's a lot of these primitive camps, and we watched the natives that were almost pygmies, and the kinds you see in the National Geographic, picking up their grasshoppers and their bugs and eating them, and we thought this was a pretty crude way of living. But uh, we did get to spend a little time in town of Inhalis, which was right off the base, it didn't have much except dance halls and bars. And we did learn a little bit about our guns. We, in those days, they thought that the Americans could not survive the tropics during the middle of the day. So we always went to work early in the morning and knocked off about 11.30, had lunch, and then had a siesta and went back to work in the evening. And some some nights we'd go out and track aircraft with the searchlights. We had a searchlight battery with us, and they would highlight the planes, and we would go out and track them with our guns. This went on until about first part of November, when our the director that I was using, the computer portion of it, went to bad, and I had to go to the repair shop. The repair shop was on Pregador. So they uh, elected me and a truck driver to take it to the repair shop. Well, I uh, got it to Manila and to the ordnance outfit in Manila who was responsible for getting it on to Pregador. And I discovered there was no barges available to get it there. So every morning I would go down and ask if there was any transportation. And since there was no transportation, then my day was my own and I could go sightseeing in the city. This outfit was right in the center of Manila in the old walled city, which had been the Spanish fortress back in the 1800s or 1700s even and uh, had a lot of history involved with it and I spent all my days wandering around on uh, walking the walls and going down in the old gun embarkments and in the fort itself this had been a big prison that uh, had dungeons down in the bottom and all this was very interesting and I was there about three weeks of course, I'd run out of money about the second day I was there, so I did lots of sightseeing, but very little shopping or anything that would cost any, any amount of money. At that time, they decided finally that they were just never going to get my director over, and I better come home, and they would take care of it if, when they, if and when they had some transportation. This time, all the transportation was being used to uh, provision the Bataan Peninsula. They were using, hauling all the supplies out of Manila and 
any other uh, various naval bases to fortify Tom Peninsula. Apparently, everybody was well aware there was likely to be a war, and they better make any provisions they could. They knew there wasn't enough troops on the island to defend the whole island, but they did plan on def uh, defending the peninsula. I went back to uh, Fort Stoltenberg and got there a couple of days before Pearl Harbor. The day of Pearl Harbor, we had uh, heard the news fairly early in the morning. Of course, we were a day earlier there, and everybody was alerted, and we were ready to uh, move out and deploy. However, my battery didn't have a director, so we couldn't leave the, the camp area. And the camp itself was made up of a bunch of huts that had a um, roof, a regular roof on them. And then from the roof down about four feet, they were open. And then below that, there was a matting that went from there to the ground. Uh, it was it kept the rain out and let in all the wind or breeze that we could get. So it, they were fairly comfortable to sleep in and we uh, were still there when the war started well it, we had just come out of the mess hall at noon when the airplanes came in everybody stopped out there to look at this very impressive sight of 50 or 60 airplanes flying in very nice formation coming right down towards us and all of a sudden, they opened their bomb bays and started dropping bombs. Well, they were bombing the airfield, but we were only about, our barracks was about a mile from the edge of the airfield. And, of course, some of the bombs came a little closer than, than the field. They weren't too accurate. But then after the heavy bombers came in and left again, and we decided it was no longer a pretty sight, and had taken whatever cover we could find. Then the dive bombers came in, and they were strafing and bombing not only the airfield, but our barracks, or not, not necessarily our barracks, but the barracks around us. I uh, had a machine gun, and... That was the first time I ever got to fire a machine gun as long and fast as I wanted to. And I think I hit an airplane or two, but I sure cut the corners off the barracks and knocked down a few power lines overhead. But this lasted for a couple of hours. And at that time, when the planes finally disappeared, we, uh, of course, were all more or less in shock. And the orders came down to form two battalions or two regiments from our regiment. So they took each battery and just divided it in half. And instead of our 180 plus people we had, 
Well, they took 90 of us and left us there, and 90 moved us to town. Well, I went with the group that became the 515th Coast Artillery, and we departed just before dark that night for Manila. We got to Manila, we again went to this ordnance depot where I had spent my time, and they issued us all the equipment we needed to make another battery. At that point, we went or shipped out to a area of Manila, which was called Tonto, and this was in the very slums right on the bay, on the beach. In fact, our guns were set up uh, within a hundred yards of the beach. But as I say, this was the, the right on the edge of the very slums, and there was no toilet facilities, no nothing. And the people had been using the area where we moved in as their toilet for years. So we had to almost physically prevent them from continuing to do so. We got our guns dug into place, and by the daylight the next morning, well, we were ready to uh, start firing. Again, we uh, these civilians kept wandering into our area to use their established toilet facilities, but uh, we find finally, by putting tape around the outside, having guards there, managed to keep them out. The second day of the war with the airplanes came over, and we got our first real shooting with our three-inch guns, and uh, every day thereafter, from the 7th of December until the morning of the 25th of December, we got a little bit of fire practically every day. The uh, We started out, we had uh, finally issued a sea rations, which was our first uh, taste of the sea rations, and they, in those days, were not anywhere and up to the quality that they are now. And we spent practically all the time right at the guns. They did uh, allow us to go into the central area where our headquarters battery was, and they had some showers set up about every three or four days. We could go in and get a shower. But that was the only time that I was able to leave the area for the whole three weeks we were there, or two and a half weeks. On Christmas Day, they gave us orders to pull out and to start towards Cregador, or towards uh, Bataan. So, if you will notice how the island is built, to go from Manila to the south part of Bataan, you have to go north and west around the head of the bay, which is a marshy area, and then you turn south again. Well, our first mission was to uh, provide air, air protection or anti-aircraft protection for a large bridge that was on this uh, road going east and west, 
just uh, north of Manila. And so we moved out there Christmas day and set up that night. And uh, As I recall, we didn't even see an airplane. But we stayed there for a couple of days, and then they moved us down to the northern part of the peninsula. And we set up in an old sweet potato field. So we had sweet potatoes. When we dug our holes, we dug lots of sweet potatoes. And there was a banana patch next door to us. So we had sweet potatoes and bananas to supplement our regular food, which uh, at that time was in, was still pretty good. We still had quite a bit of, of fresh food and uh, fresh meat especially. But after we'd been there for a short time, the food supply began to get a little short. What had happened, Cregador had been stocked with mutton from Australia right after World War II or World War I. And this stuff had been put in cold storage in the early, in the late teens and early 1920s. And some of the Japanese bombs had uh, closed out these cold storage plants and, and uh, damaged them. So they had to start feeding us this meat. So we had some uh, lamb or goat that was at least 20 years old, but it was edible. And then they uh, had these horses that belonged to the uh, Philippine Cavalry. It was the 26th Cavalry. Well, those... Uh, of course, had been of no value going down on the peninsula. There was no use for cavalry, and the troops had become infantry. So they started killing these horses and mules, and we ate them. And we ate lots of horse meat and quite a bit of mule meat. Mule meat is far superior. In case you ever have a choice, have to take a choice. It is much sweeter and. Uh, finer textured than horse meat is. So we supplemented our diets with everything we could find. We'd, by this time, we'd gone to two meals a day, uh, right at daylight and just before dark. So we had anything we could find in between. We'd, we'd cook up on our own, uh, eat it as is. So bananas and Sweet potatoes became very nice. After a few weeks, we moved to down on the east side of the Bataan Peninsula, about 20 or 30 miles from the southern tip. They were, they'd made a, built a small airfield there for fighters, and we were to guard the airfield. We stayed there for the rest of the war where my battery did and uh, <coughs> we survived in pretty good shape because as I say we were all young and fairly healthy when we got there uh, 
We also had an ability to scrounge everything we could find. And we didn't suffer too much from malnutrition or lack of food as some of the other units did. Some days there was very little activity and uh, I got a chance to go up and down the peninsula visiting with friends in the other batteries, especially the ones from Silver City who remained in the original G battery. And also some of our some of my friends had been transferred to a tank unit that was organized. And they were up near the front. In a time or two I went up and visited them, but it was a little too noisy up there for me. At that time the front lines were about thirty miles north of where we were, and went more or less east and west across the peninsula. The uh, one incident that I recall during this time was through a friend I'd learned that there was a <coughs> ship out in the bay which had uh, loaded all the PX supplies from Manila. And it was an inner island boat, which was a, uh, not too big, but it would, it would be a, I don't know how they classify ships, but it was probably a couple hundred feet long and uh, held a crew of maybe 20 or 30 people. And that was all they had on there, except they had these all these supplies. So a friend of mine, well, two friends of mine from Silver City, one who was a lieutenant, uh, Prior, prior Twaits and this sergeant, Eddie Sailors, who had grown up next door to me, and then a boy from Penis Altus, Dick Hunt, uh, decided to go out and see if we could buy some of these supplies. Money was no problem at this time. Uh, uh, the recruits we had were all Philippine Army, and they loved to play poker, but they didn't know how. And they had been paid at two or three months in advance just to get them. They were draftees, and to get them in the Army, they'd bribed them, so to speak, with this uh, payment. And soon, a good bit of their money ended up in our hands. So we always had money for something. It was a matter of finding something to spend it for. Anyway, the four of us went down to the beach which was only a few miles from where we were, and found a outrigger canoe. It was uh, probably 40 feet long, and three foot wide at the widest, and then had an outrigger on one side. Well, there was no one around, so we just helped ourselves to it. And you had four people who had probably never sailed a boat of any sort. I think I had paddled around a, uh, a park one time in my life, and I'm not sure the others had ever been on a boat. So we had to learn to paddle out to the ship, which was about two miles offshore. 
But after going in circles and uh, finally learning to coordinate so we were all paddling at the same time in the same direction, we managed to get there. And we got aboard ship, the master and the crew just, uh, they were dying for visitors. They'd just been sitting there for several weeks. And uh, they entertained, and entertained us royally and fed us a good meal. And then we went down to the PX supplies and they had uh, cigarettes primarily, was what we were interested in, and candy. And they had a good supply of both. But then it became a matter of how we were going to get these cases of cigarettes back back to the beach. Our little old canoe just wasn't going to hold too much of this. But we finally ended up with three or four cases of cigarettes and another case of assorted candies and uh, started back to shore. Well, the wind had come up in the meantime and it was going against us. And we really made lots of circles. And the crew of the ship must have had a ball watching us because it took us probably a couple of hours to get the two or three miles or even less back to shore. Well, when we got back to shore, the uh, Filipinos that owned the boat were there just jumping up and down, hopping mad because we'd stole their boat. Well, it looked like we were, of course, we were armed and they weren't, but it still looked like it would be a, becoming a very messy situation. But finally, we opened the case of cigarettes and gave each one of them a carton of cigarettes, and they were perfectly happy. Incidentally, in these days, uh, cigarettes was one commodity that was exceptionally cheap over there. We paid uh, 50 cents a carton for them, so we could afford to give them a couple of cartons for the use of their boat. When we got back to uh, the batteries, well, of course, our, we resold all this stuff at no profit, and uh, they went, and we could have used twice as much. But as far as I know, nobody ever else ever went back down to the ship. However, it was still there for well, the balance of the war, if I think at some point it finally departed and went down to one of the southern islands. Well, life in this uh, particular place where our guns were set up was very slow, and we had most of the aircraft flew over Pregador or up on the front lines, and they were well out of our range, so we would be alerted several times a day, but seldom ever fired because the aircraft were just too far away. Long about the end of March, the latter part of March, one of the gun batteries up on the west coast of Bataan that was supporting the front lines had uh, suffered an awful lot of casualties from malaria and diarrhea or dysentery or something, and they were very short-handed. So they volunteered my services to go up and uh, fill in. They needed somebody in the computer section, and that was where they were hurting the worst. So I left for there 
I think about the last week of March, and stayed up there until the surrender came on in April, on the 7th of April. At the time of the surrender, uh, a day or two before the surrender, the battery was told to move out and to go back down south and regroup. So that we did, and never set up again, because by the time we got to where we were supposed to set up, that area had been overrun, and we just uh, ran the guns up and down the road for several hours, and finally put them in a ditch, and we became infantry. However, we never got organized into infantry because the surrender was announced by that time. When the surrender was announced, we all went to a, I say we all, all the people that I were with, and practically the whole regiment, went to a uh, area on the extreme southern tip of uh, Bataan. We stayed there for couple of days, never saw Japanese or anything, and finally one morning, bright and early, there was four or five Japanese came in and, and told us to get ready to move out. We, uh, group I was with, we had several vehicles, and the Japanese got in with us, and it looked like we were going to have a pleasant ride to wherever it was they were taking us. But we got to opposite Marvelous Navy Station, which is on the southeast corner of the peninsula and sort of across from Pregador. And the Japanese got out and told us to park the vehicles that we walked. So we drove the vehicles out into the, the sand. And uh, then several of us who'd been together through most of the war went over to Marvelous Naval Station, which was deserted by this time, but we found quite a little food there. So we helped ourselves to cans of condensed milk and uh, some vegetables, and we found a bunch of cans of abalone. Well, we didn't know what abalone was, abalone, or... Anyhow, it didn't take us long to learn that... Uh, You've got to do something with that stuff besides open the can and eat it. That's undoubtedly the toughest fish I ever ran across. So we filled our packs with what we could carry and started walking up the road. Well, as we got a little further north, the Japanese started organizing us into 100-man groups. And they'd put a guard at the front of each one and a guard at the rear. But in the meantime, the Japanese troops were coming down the peninsula, the combat troops, preparing to take up positions to attack Cregador. And uh, they were on one side of the road and we were on the other, and it didn't take them long to figure out that we still had some goodies with us that they could confiscate. So the combat troops would make a stop and and they would search us for our fountain pens or wristwatches or rings or anything that looked of value then, cigarette lighters. So by the time we'd gone only a few miles, we'd lost most of this stuff. But for some reason, they never bothered our packs. 
and we had all this these canned goods and a few goodies that we accumulated in these packs. This uh, went on for another day or so, and the Japanese got more organized and started taking these groups of a hundred or so people and uh, make us walk for a set period of time, and then they'd stop and uh, we'd spend the night. And they fed us, I think, three times in this march, which was about the distance that I traveled, I think, was about 120 miles. This We did this in about six days, so it really wasn't a, a hard march for people who had been in good physical shape. And, as I say, we had managed to eat pretty well, and um, the people I was with were generally in pretty good shape. Also, water became a problem. Of course, in the tropics, it was pretty hot, and you do a lot of perspiring. And we had it, you know, all had our canteens. So we would uh, stop every time we crossed a creek. And these were filthy, slow-moving, uh, I don't know, sloughs, I guess you'd call them. But they were wet. So we would fill our canteens and put iodine in. And then when we got to the next watering stop, we would drain whatever might be left and refill them. Also, we soon learned that these Japanese soldiers coming down the road all carried salt with them. And uh, we would, every soldier we that stopped, we had an occasion to talk to, we would learn the Japanese word from salt for salt and ask them for salt. And a few of them gave, gave it to us. So we had salt, plenty of salt. At the watering stops is where the, the high death rate was in this march because these people that had marched from the last watering stop, which might have been six, seven hours away, had uh, consumed all their water. They'd had no salt, and then they got to these watering stops and immediately drank quarts of water and immediately passed out. Of course, the Japanese didn't understand, or if they did understand, they didn't want to understand this. So uh, if these people weren't ready to march, they were just likely to ban at them or, or uh, just drag them off the road and let them die. And this is where high percentage of the people that uh, died. One incident that we ran across, the, uh, we pulled into a rest area and there was a Japanese officer in charge of it. And he caught some of his soldiers uh, looting our packs and making people give up their watches and whatnot. And uh, he came over with his, put, drew his pistol and just shot the Japanese soldier right there, right on the spot, for looting. And that was the end of it. Uh, so it, they weren't all bad. They, they had a few people that were trying to look after us, but they, most of the troops were uneducated, and uh, this was the first time they'd ever had any authority over anybody.
made to death. And we have a PW under and very little supervision in most cases. This march went on to until we got to San Fernando. The uh, that was the nearest railhead, and that is in the northern part of the peninsula. Uh, as I say, we were fed about three times on the whole march, and it consisted of uh, rice balls, you know, a little bigger than a baseball, and just rice and salt. Luckily, we had the group I was with, was six or seven of us, had uh, still a few of our canned goods that we we picked up down in Marvelous and put in, included some canned tuna and canned salmon and along with our abalone, which I don't think anybody ate, but we at least chewed on it, and canned milk. That was we just drank it straight, and that of course is high energy. So we, by the time we got to San Fernando, we were still all in fairly good shape. Our shoes had shown quite a little sign of wear, and a lot of us had pretty good-sized blisters. Walking, we were walking on our dirty socks and all the perspiring. Another thing we did try to do is every time we got a rest, we would pull our socks off and dry them and wash them if we had a chance. But when we got to San Fernando, we stayed there for several days, and then were loaded aboard the a train. Well, Philippine railroads are narrow gauge and little bitty cars, but and the box cars are similar to the forty and eight cars they had in World War One in France. And they loaded us on these box in these box cars and shut the doors. Well, it got mighty hot in there. And they had us pretty well crowded. We had a few people that died in route, but quite a few suffered from heat, ex heat exhaustion and uh, whatever it is you suffer from when you get in those confined spaces with that many people. They'd load about 70 or 80 of us to one of these cars, and we would barely have room to sit down. We went from there to Camp O'Donnell. Camp O'Donnell had been a Philippine Army camp before the war, and it had just the crudest of facilities. A place where they segregated people that they thought were going to die. And uh, for some reason, I did recover and get back. I had malaria real bad, and some dysentery and whatever else went with it. At this time, we hadn't started suffering too badly from the dietary diseases. That came a little bit later. But this camp was, uh, I have nothing to say good about it. It uh, was short of water, it was short of uh, toilet facilities. Uh, there wasn't even enough housing to get us all in out of the rain to sleep. And this, of all the places I stayed, was the, undoubtedly the worst. And I guess because it was the first place that we'd 
come into, we didn't know what to expect, and it was bad. From there, after about three or four weeks there, they loaded us aboard trains, again, not quite so crowded this time, and took us to Cabana Tawan. I say, should say trucks and trains, because most of us get truck rides. Uh, Cabana Tawan had also been a Philippine Army camp, but it was newer or much nicer. And either before or right after I got there, they had, the American engineers and medics had uh, put in some pretty nice flush type or at least sanitary type uh, latrines and our water was a little more available. There was more water faucets and we could uh, get get water a little more freely. I went in, the camp was divided into two areas, the working group and the hospital group. Since I was still pretty sick, they had put me in the hospital group and I stayed there for Oh, a couple of months. Uh, the work details spent most of their time just housekeeping, uh, and they fixed the camp up to be very livable. When I finally got well enough to move over to the other side, well, I uh, worked on the vegetable gardens, which we started, and quite uh, a it was all outdoor work, but uh, it wasn't too bad. We'd probably work six hours a day. And the Japanese, most of the guards were not too bad in this particular camp. In uh, the latter part of 42, uh, 42 uh, they were taking people out of the camp and loading them aboard ship and sending them to uh, Japan and Korea. Well, I uh, had developed malaria again pretty bad, but I was selected for one of these groups and uh, was barely maneuvering it when we got aboard the, the trucks and went to Manila to load, load aboard ship. Well, we got in there about dark to, and started loading aboard the ship and they had several Japanese standing along the you know, gangway and picking off people that didn't look like they were going to make the trip. Well, apparently I must look pretty bad because this Japanese doctor pulled me off the, the shipment and uh, along with three or four other people in his car, well, he took me to Billabid Prison. Billabid Prison was had been a federal penitentiary that I believe housed mostly uh, immigration type uh, criminals. It wasn't a maximum security type prison. But shortly after Tregador had fallen and uh, the Navy at on the east side of Manila Bay at uh, 
the naval station there, where they had a big hospital, had been moved lock, stock, and barrel to Bilibid. So it was essentially a big Navy hospital. It had all the Navy doctors and corpsmen. And uh, it probably only had about 600 or less patients uh, or people in various uh, category of illnesses, some of which were not serious and some some were just Navy people who'd been on the base and were brought along. There was nothing wrong with them. But they, the corpsmen were, a Navy corpsman is much higher qualified, or it was at that time anyway, than the Army corpsman. They were corresponded to a nurse. And uh, they ran their wards just like in this prison camp, just like they would have in a regular hospital. Everybody had to get up that was able to and make their beds and clean the floors. And, uh, the doctors came in on the regular rounds, and it was uh, more like a hospital than a prison camp in many ways. The guards generally stayed up on the walls around the camp. It was a big, it had high. 20-foot-high walls around it, and uh, it had it did have bars on some of the windows. The little ward which I was brought into was uh, had been designated for the seriously ill. Why I was taken there, I don't know, except that at the time, I guess I was pretty sick, and also I think they needed a, a semi-well-labeled semi labor force to help the corpsmen. So I uh, was assigned there. There's only about, probably averaged about 10 to 12 of us in the war. Most of those who were seriously ill had tuberculosis. And uh, also they had, this was a big turnover because most of these fellows did die. But the building was probably, oh, about the size of a house. I imagine it had two, three thousand square foot in it and divided into several rooms. It had been a maximum security cell block, but of course the doors were all open. And we had flush toilets and uh, running water at all times. We had a shower. It, uh, Living conditions there weren't too bad. We got our food from a central mess, and it consisted of rice and vegetables. And while it uh, wasn't too no nutritious, it uh, was filling, and and there was adequate amount of it. At this time, we began all developing beriberi and scurvy and pellagra. So the Navy doctors were doing everything they could to get us fresh fruits and vegetables that uh, would take care of this. I, during this time, I did see one interesting thing. Saw my one and only person that I, I'd ever seen die of uh, rabies. They had a 
The boy had been out on work detail with the Japanese guard, and the two of them had been bit by a rabid dog. The boy, they hadn't given him any treatment for some weeks or some days anyway, and they brought them both into the hospital, hoping that the Navy doctors could do something for the Japanese as well as the American. And they were pretty sick by the time they came in, and this boy was put in our ward. And uh, he showed all the, the typical signs of having rabies, and that he, his muscles in his neck continually contracted and expanded. They later moved him over to an isolation ward where he died a few years, a few days later. I stayed in this ward about six months, I believe, and. Then I moved to another ward in the same compound, which had the work details. I spent, as I have probably forgot to say, this Bilibid Hospital is right in downtown Manetta. And the Japanese headquarters at that time was in Manetta. So the work detail was primarily to go out and take care of the grounds at the uh, headquarters. They had confiscated a large estate just out on the edge of town, and uh, we went out every morning and raked weeds, and cut weeds, raked grass, whatever needed doing to pretty the place up. This was a rather easy job. Uh, we got to walk through the city to get to this place, and. Uh, Everything was rather leisurely. The guards were in no great rush, and when we got to the grounds, the work wasn't hard. And I was on this detail for a couple of months, and then I was selected to go back to Kadamatawan. Uh, this was rather uneventful trip. We went back by truck, and I there at Kadamatawan, I again worked on the farm and uh, general place up around the camp at very leisurely pace. The food wasn't near as good there as it had been in Billabit, or it wasn't as abundant, I should say, or maybe the fact that I was exerting more energy and needed more food. But I stayed there for about a month, and then I was selected to go on a work detail down to Lipa province, which is down in the southeast portion of Luzon. There they were building a air, big airstrip. And when I got down there, I ran into numerous friends that I'd known over the years, and we did lots of work there. We was all pick and shovel. For me, there was few people that were in mechanized equipment, but I was strictly a pick and shovel. We had a, we're given a little railroad car with a, a little bit of track, and we moved this along the, the cuts that we made, and we'd fill this, dig out the dirt, fill this little car up, roll it down the track to where they wanted some fill, then dump it and come back and get more. 
Well, here they discovered they'd get more work out of us if uh, they assigned us a quota each day. We were given maybe a one cubic yard, or depending on uh, how high the banks were we were cutting. And so you can get a lot more dirt off the high bank in a sooner time than you can off the low bank. And you didn't have to move the track as often to keep it over close to you. So they would give us a quota each day. And once we finished that quota, well, theoretically, we were through for the day. Uh, and you, they finally figured out that enough of a quota so we would have to go in for lunch and then come back and work an hour or two more. But uh, we didn't dare finish too soon as our quarters would be higher the next day. So we more or less controlled how much work we did by how fast we did it. If we didn't finish it in the day, well, sometimes they would keep us out later, but usually not. Usually they would send crews that had finished over to assist us. This was uh, a seven-day-a-week job. We came in in the evenings. We could, they had the water available and we could dip it with buckets and uh, bath. Of course, the only thing we wore was doing this was just a pair of shorts. Everybody had a pair of shorts and a pair of shoes, if you were lucky enough to have shoes. If not, you had the Japanese wooden clogs that were a little difficult to work in. But we were taken to and from our work by truck, and we did help them, I guess, make an airfield. We stayed there. Well, I was there for about three or four months. And anyway, it was in the beginning of 44. We moved, uh, they moved me and numerous others up to a camp just outside of Manila. It was uh, on an old Philippine Army air base, or Philippine Army barracks. They were building an airfield there. There had been a very small field, but they were enlarging it to a you know, full-size field and then building another one down the hill that would handle the bomber-type planes. There, uh, I got a job as a truck driver. This was a, a pretty good job since I didn't have to do any pick and shovel work. All I had to do was do minor maintenance on the truck, which was mostly just gas and oil, and a little, a little bit of minor repair. And every morning, the group of us, the truck drivers and the roller operators, were marched down there after, right after breakfast before the work details were called out. And we got our trucks ready and went out to the airstrip. Sometimes we would pick up the work details, depending on where the work was going on, and taking them onto the airstrip. Each truck was assigned a Japanese guard. Now here, let me tell you a little something about Japanese, the, the guards we had in the Japanese camps. While we were in the downtown prisons, they were 
mostly Japanese guards. Out on the airstrips, the senior guards were Japanese, but the other guards were from Formosa. And uh, they were conscripts, didn't like the place much better than we did. And all they did is wanted to make sure that we didn't escape because then they would get the blame. What we did was, uh, you know, they were very lean. Now, when we got the Japanese guards, uh, they were a little more strict. They, they had their own rules and regulations, and they wanted us to follow them. Uh, we normally only got Japanese guards at this airstrip when we were assigned to a job downtown. We would go down to the dock area and pick up supplies and bring them out. This again was a good job if you got a good Japanese guard, because he could be persuaded to let you stop and buy coconuts and anything else that looked good to eat, mangoes. And from the people on the street, and uh, as long as you shared with him. And since we did get a little bit of money, a very small amount, but we did get paid a little bit, we always could spend a spare nickel or so for a coconut. The, again, on these guards, as we moved further north, we got different types of guards. We had... Uh, when we got to Formosa, we had the Korean Guard, and that was, they were not very choice. They'd never had any authority before, and they wanted to show that they had authority. When we got to Japan, we had civilian guards, Japanese civilians, which were the, the rejects from the army. They were sort of the home guard, and there again, they were kind of nasty at times. But in, back to the Philippines, the guards that we had were, as I say, rather lenient. They would just put them in their days the same as we were uh, on the, when we were working on their strips. One thing we did here that we never got a chance to do at any other camp, the trucks burned alcohol. And we went down to the dock area or to the refineries and pick this up in 55-gallon drums. Well, we would find drums. We learned to make a, a test and uh, discover which drums that had gasoline and which had not. And when we found a drum that did not show any signs of having gasoline in it, we would set it aside. And that became our drinking alcohol. And we used the other drums for fuel. Well, they, I'm sure the supervisor, who was an old Japanese sergeant, uh, had a faint idea what we were doing, but he didn't care as long as it didn't interfere with his job. But we had several people that stayed behind to do the general maintenance on the vehicles that weren't running. And during the day, they would take uh, five-gallon cans and fill them half full of alcohol and half full of water. They would set them out in the work area. So when we came in in the evening, all these cans were there. 
for us to fill up our canteens and sit there and munch on this alcohol. Unless anybody been lucky enough to get a coconut, I have a little coconut left of it. And so it became a kind of an alcoholic party after work every day. This lasted the whole time we were there. They, the supervisors, the big wigs, either never discovered what we were doing or didn't care. The only thing was we could not bring it into camp at night. And we usually didn't get back in until uh, around dark because uh, they stayed out and gassed all the vehicles and wasted a lot of time. So, as long as we didn't try to smuggle any of this alcohol into camp, we were all right. Well, of course, there's, there's about 35 or 40 of us on this detail. And somebody was always you know, screwing up and trying to sneak a little in. Well, the guards at the gate going into our compound discovered what was going on right quick. So when we came in every night, we had to take the lids off our canteens and they would smell. If uh, they smelled any alcohol, well, the culprit was given punishment right on the spot. He was left to kneel and probably got kicked around a bit before he was allowed to come in and have his supper. Uh, it didn't take us long to learn that it just wasn't worth it. We could get all the alcohol we wanted during the day. We could take it out to the people working on the in the field. We would take canteens full of uh, pure alcohol, there, and the people working on the field would have their canteens with water in it, so they'd mix it out there. We had some rather nice parties at times. And this went on for the several months which we were there. The only real problem we had was one day at noon, we, uh, we had two uh, steam rollers. And these roller, one of the roller operators, each roller had two operators on it. And one roller for their two operators got kind of inebriated at lunch. And he went back out with this 20-ton roller, however big it was, and proceeded to run it off into a ditch. Well, the Japanese took a dim view of that. The roller people were instructed they wouldn't drink any alcohol at noon. Otherwise, this was a fairly good work job. We uh, got fed, not abundantly, but enough to survive, and as I say, for me, the work was not hard driving the truck. I did get in trouble a couple of times because uh, I was at the beginning driving a Chevrolet truck and a little short wheelbase one, and the boss that was starting to charge the motor pool would take that one to town at night to go see his girlfriends, and uh, he won't smile, it would break down while he was in town, and he'd have to have it towed in, and then he blamed me for that, so I would catch the devil for a day or so, and have to clean the gas tank and do everything else. Once he was going to burn me up, he tied me to the front of his truck, and was going to set me 
poured gasoline and I was going to set it on fire. Well, I wasn't too much worried because I didn't figure he was going to burn up the garage full of trucks, but it is an uneasy feeling when you're tied up and someone dumps gasoline around your feet and says he's going to light it. But uh, outside of that, I got along pretty well there. The only punishment is that when somebody goofed up, we would often get group punishment. Everybody in the group would get get to kneel for a while, and it's very uncomfortable if you have to kneel for any length of time. The Orientals can do it, but the Americans have never learned how. We stayed at this camp until the day the Americans landed down in Lake and McCarthy made his dramatic landing. That night, that afternoon, we had been bombed pretty heavily by American planes. They didn't. The camp, our barracks were in row in a row with the Japanese barracks, and there was no indication on any of them who lived where. But there was some airplanes in revetments out in front and behind the barracks. So these Navy dive bombers came in, and they were bombing at the airplanes and at the barracks. And they hit the Japanese barracks right below us, right in the center, but in our barracks, they hit in between the barracks were on, on the side of a little hill, and they were kind of elevated. And we were down in the trenches in between them, and the bombs came down in there. It uh, covered a few of us up, but uh, nobody, luckily, was hurt. So that night, they moved us out down to Manila and put us aboard a ship. The ship was a old freighter that was loaded with coal, and the coal was about half way up the hole where we were sitting on top of the coal. Now, this was, may have seemed like a bad place, but actually it turned out to be not bad. We got quite dirty, of course, immediately, but they loaded us in this hold, which I would guess was 60 feet wide and maybe 70 or 80 feet long. And they put 600 of us in this and originally. There were two holes. They put 600 in the front and 600 in the back. And they put it, and we marched in, and we stood up, and the man in front of you, you were your line was right behind the line in front of you, and everybody's chest was touching the back of the one in front of you, and the men on each side of you were touching you. Well, after they got the 600 of us in there, they had about 20 foot left at the end, at the end where we came in, and they told us to sit down. Well, it doesn't take much arithmetic to figure out that it takes you much more room to sit than it does to stand. And by the time the 600 of us got sat down, we were on top of each other and around each other, and you know, we could barely get to the, the floor. 
Well, the sides of this ship were had been made of timbers, and then the sheet metal was put on outside of it. It was soon discovered that you could take uh, a rope or string or blanket or something and make a hammock on the, the side. So we had about 150 people that made hammocks on the side, and they got in those. Well, that gave us a little more room on the floor. We still didn't have room to lay down, but we could more or less sit with our knees under our chin and have a little space to call our own. We stayed in Manila Bay about three or four days, and in the tropics, the sun right on you, no rain, no clouds even, water soon became a problem. We had our, most of us had our canteens, and they would uh, allow us to fill them once a day. Uh, we were very hot and uncomfortable, but we were sitting on this cold, and so our perspiration and whatnot just was absorbed. One of the problems was the bathroom facilities, which were non-existent. They uh, would pass a bucket around. If it came in the daytime, it wasn't too bad. If, if, if it didn't get spilled, well, it uh, did get hauled back up on top. The, one of the problems was that they would sometimes put it down at night, or with no light now bucket passing around, but there's no way that it was ever going to make it through the crowd. Uh, that's where the coal came in. At least it was absorbent. And since we perspired so much, our urine output was very minimal. But fact uh, the whole time I was on the ship, I never had a bowel movement, and I don't think most of them did. When we left Manila Bay, they formed us into a convoy. There was eight ships of us. And I think there were a couple of Japanese destroyers accompanying us. There was only the one ship that had the Americans on. The rest, there was one ship that had Japanese nationals that were being returned. And uh, several freighters. One was a tanker, but I'm not sure what the others were. We went around out of Manila Bay and around and started up through the China Sea at night. And the first night out, we were joined by a uh, ship that had people from Hong Kong, prisoners from Hong Kong and uh, Sumatra and Java. They were hit and sunk right ahead of us, and we picked up some of the survivors. Of course, this one, in addition to what we already had in these holes, where they weren't too popular, but they did get aboard. Some of them died almost immediately because they'd been injured and they'd been in the water a long time. And as we proceeded north, Yes, uh, near the northern part of Luzon, the uh, 
American submarines have got in with us. And they actually pinged the sides of our ship. We had some Navy people on there, and we were down below water level. So they were explaining what was happening as these pings would hit. Of course, with 600 people, you can be awful quiet when there's submarine outside. And this Navy people would explain what was happening with the sonar that they were using. And it made a distinct ping on the side of the ship. And apparently they used, the submarines were using this to determine the size of the ship. And they were after the bigger ships, luckily. So, after we had a few of these pings and uh, didn't get hit with any torpedoes, we began to feel a little better about it. And about that time, a ship up ahead of us was uh, torpedoed, and it was a tanker. And it, even though we were down below the hold, from below the waterline, and it's probably 25 feet to the top of the, the uh, loading hold, or the loading, whatever they call it on the ship, uh, we could see this huge flame go up. And it sunk that ship right there. It also sunk two other ships in the convoy. And at that point, we turned west and went into Hong Kong Harbor. We got in right opposite Hong Kong and stayed there during the day. And every night, we would we would try to get out with us and they would apparently run into submarines so we'd turn around and go back in and then during the daytime we were right in the harbor and they did let us up on top a little bit in fact they rigged up a uh, pump with some they could pump the seawater up and we could walk under that and call it a shower but then the american airplanes were started bombing hong kong and that was our first uh, view of some of the newer bombers. The, uh, well, they were bombers that weren't even in use when, when the war started. And we'd see these flight of bombers go over us. Of course, when they started in, we all had to go back down in the hole and get locked up. But we could see them out through the opening in the top. <coughs> and they were bombing the dock area, but we were far enough out, so we were in any danger from those bombs. So every day we got bombed, every night we went out to sea, and the submarines would run us back in. And this went on for about 10 days. And by this time, the water supply on the ship and the food was getting a little critical. They would shorten our rations, and sometimes we'd get into dock and we'd Get a, get a little bit of water taken away. But finally we got out, and I guess the submarines weren't there that night. Anyhow, we made a run for it, and uh, our ship with two others got to the south part of Formosa. We'd been headed for the south of Honshu Island, but they we got to Formosa, apparently we were out of the coal, out of everything. We were, they were shoveling the coal out from under us to 
keep the ship going. And uh, I guess the ship's water was also gone. Anyhow, we got to the southern the southern port of, I think it was on the southwest side of uh, Formosa. And they took us off and we went to a an old schoolhouse that was sitting on the side of the hill. And we rode across quite a bit of the country in the train and we could see out the windows and it was all uh, um, pastures and farms and vegetable gardens and whatnot. It uh, looked like a real nice place to raise a lot of pineapple on Formosa. And I think we were located in the north central part of the island at this schoolhouse. There was a group of British who had come from uh, Sumatra and Singapore that were in a camp about a mile away from us. They'd been taken off the ship too. So we did get to see a little bit of them. Uh, work details went over there. But this uh, schoolhouse was our home for the next three months. So this all, we got there in November, or last of October, and the Formosa you know, was fairly tropical. And so our Philippine clothes were adequate then. 